Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this, the final summer school theme talk for 2021. I'm welcoming you, as always, on behalf of the whole of the summer school organising panel. In geographical order from north to south this evening, we are Kate Brady McKenna, it's me, Nicola Temple, Michael Allard, and Jane Blackall. Those of you who've been following us through this week will know that we have now each had a place as being first on that list. It's been a delight working with the panel, and I know that you appreciate the work that goes into this. You may not have noticed the technical work which has gone into getting all the screen shares and highlights in the right place at the right time, but particular thanks to Jane for that. This is the last of these talks, but we are very pleased indeed to let you know that we are planning a series of follow-up online mini retreats on Zoom exploring this year's theme. These are contemplative events where we will take each of the theme talks and the opening night worship in turn, and we'll consider a few questions related to that particular aspect of the theme. We're not gonna be giving you lots of extra content. Instead, this is an opportunity for you to go deeper in your own reflection, to make links with your own context so that we can put this stuff into practice and start to transform our churches and perhaps the world. The format of these retreats is really simple. We'll lead you in some guided reflection. You'll have a good stretch of time to quietly do your own pondering, and then there'll be opportunities to share your insights in carefully facilitated contemplative small groups. Save the date for the first one on Saturday the 25th of September from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. And we'll send something out on the mailing list telling you how to sign up places will be limited. You are welcome here, no matter what you've brought with you, no matter where you are, and no matter how many of these talks you've experienced in the past. We gather from all over the place, and we gather at our desks, our kitchen tables, sofas, our beds, our gardens, our offices. It doesn't matter how or from where we gather. It matters that we gather. This has been a rich, nourishing, and frankly tiring week. We started off nearly a week ago now with the opening worship service led by Jane Blackall. And since then we've heard from Joe James, Shana Parvin Begum, Rory Castle Jones, and Stephen Lingwood. The talks have all presented us with much needed challenges but also with comfort and inspiration. The panel really is grateful to all of them for the work and love that they've put into these offerings. We do not underestimate the cost of this gift. And every single one of the speakers has proved that we made good decisions when we chose you. You can catch up with the opening worship and each of the talks on YouTube, and I do encourage you to do so. So housekeeping, let me just run these past you. These things do matter. I know some of you have heard them five times, but they just need repeating. 
We are recording this session. If that causes you any concerns, just you're welcome to turn your camera off. Please don't use the chat function during the talk. I'm giving the talk and I'm easily distracted, but it does also distract everyone else. So until the end of the talk, please just resist the temptation. You'll be able to have some conversation about the talk when it's over in small group rooms. You should find that you can turn subtitles on and off somewhere in the app or the web page, depending on how you're joining us. The subtitles are generally accurate, but they're live and automatic, so there may be some issues with particular words. I apologise, but that will decrease the accessibility for some of you. Throughout the evening, please do what you need to do to be comfortable. You may want to turn your camera off, stretch or move around. If you miss any of the talk, it will be available on YouTube by tomorrow. Please remember that even if you can only see the speaker, if your camera is on, we can see you. So please turn it off if you're moving around and please don't take us for a walk around your house. We do know that there are reasons you may need to leave before the end. Again, watch out for the YouTube recording and know that we know you may have to go. So you go with our blessing. We don't mind. The panel will be keeping an eye on what's going on in the participant screen. So if anything untoward happens, we'll be on it. Part of our ethos at summer school is to receive these talks as open and generous spiritual offerings from the speaker. They do take spiritual and emotional energy and they're presented as gifts to this community. For that reason, we don't have Q&A or discussions after the talk. After the talk, the chat will be open if you want to show your appreciation, but it's not there for debate or critique. And a reminder, please don't use it from now until the end. You'll be able to share your views in your small groups, and we hope that you'll use those groups as a continuation of the spirit of the talk itself, rather than for debating. After the talk, we'll take a short break to stretch or put the kettle on. And then for those of you who wish to join in, we'll gather again very briefly before popping you into those small groups for conversation on the talks. There will be a prompt question for you to discuss and we'll provide you with that at the end. You might want to scribble it down when we do. As before, Michael Allard and I will be available from the end of the session until 9.45 if you'd like a pastoral discussion. You are welcome to contact us and you'll have had our contact details in your joining email. And after the discussions, please join us back here in the main room for some closing devotions and to say goodnight. So this is the bit where the last four evenings I have introduced the speaker. They've provided us with short biographies and it's been interesting to find out a bit more about them. Our speaker this evening is the Reverend Kate Brady McKenna, which is me. And a few weeks ago, when asked to provide my biography, this is this is where I was. Kate, she, her, is minister with the Unitarian Congregation in Bury, East Lancashire, where she's been for nearly five years since moving from Norwich. She loves Jesus and Gaia and celebrates whichever festivals make her heart and soul sing, which allows for a lot of celebration. She's proudly queer. Her Desert Island book would be a compilation of the entire Chalet School series. And for music, 
She would take everything by ski lifespan, although she would pretend she'd take everything by telemen. She is a proud dog ball, likes making jam, and gets sad if she doesn't see the sea a few times a year. Her favourite hymn book is the purple one, and she loves the Psalms. Before I begin, I have a thank you to give. Catherine and Cody Coyne have been enormously generous with their talents and their time. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they've provided both the postlude and the prelude for this evening. I am blessed to have friends who are also talented artists and have done this this evening. Excuse me. So let's take time now to gather more deeply. Let's take time to settle into these places where we are and into this gathering which we make. Let's take time to bring ourselves fully, entirely, wholeheartedly here. And let us call for a blessing. Let us call for a blessing on these places where we are but they may be fully inhabited by that which is sacred. And let us call for a blessing on this gathering which we make, that we may bring to it all that we are able, and that we may receive from it some of what we need. Let us pause and breathe for a moment. And now let's light our chalice candle, this candle which is cradled in a chalice from Hucklow and which has been lit every night this week. All light is one light. And as the light from this small flame flickers and settles, it joins with the light which is the source of all light and the source of all life. Amen.
by the rivers of Barvel, we sat down and wept as we remembered Zion. We had hung up our lyres on the willows that were there when those who had taken us captive asked us to sing them a song. Our tormentors demanded joy from us. Sing us one of the songs from Zion. How can we sing a song about Adonai here in a strange land? Psalm 137 from the Complete Jewish Bible. We are living, I think you'll agree, in a strange land. It looks familiar, it sounds familiar, but it is a strange, strange land that we are currently inhabiting. Ourselves from two years ago wouldn't recognize it. And possibly we wouldn't recognize ourselves from two years ago either, because what new ways of being we have found. Two years ago, which, would have us, which of us would have been familiar with dashing back into the house because we forgot our mask? Which of us in 2019 sneezed into our elbows? But which of us are now vastly better at asking for consent before interactions with people? And two years ago, which of us could have pictured what's happened here this week? which of us would have foreseen the widespread use of Zoom? And crucially, which of us would have imagined the power and the quality of the sacred space which could be created and held here in virtual space? This last 18 months has been one hell of a ride and it's not over yet. And I want to say something that I don't think any of us have heard nearly enough. It's that even though this pandemic has happened to everyone, doesn't mean it hasn't happened to you as an individual too. If you had experienced something this enormous and it had only happened to you, if just your world had been upturned like this, people would have been showering you with love and support. You would have been the focus of a circle of care. I hope you have received love, support and care, but sometimes as it must and should, the communal overrides the individual and the individual could feel lost. I wish I could say this to each of you individually, but of course I can't. So please hear this as a message to you. I am so sorry for what has happened to you personally in the last 18 months. I am so sorry that your life, yours as an individual, has been turned upside down and that you as an individual have lived through this time of uncertainty, of grief, and of the exhaustion that we always forget grief brings in its wake. It hurts me that you as an individual weren't able to see your friends, your family and your loved ones for such a long time. It hurts me that you as an individual lived with fear of you or they dying alone. 
It breaks my heart that you as an individual lived with grief and possibly with the death of loved ones and that you lived with it at a time where you weren't necessarily able to get the support and the ritual that you needed and deserved. I weep with you that the big moments in your life were bypassed or weren't what you needed them to be. I am sorry for the things that have happened to you. None of you need my permission to do anything, but I give you my blessing here and now to sometimes take a moment to sit and mourn for what has happened to you as an individual, for your own upturned world. I pray that you can find a safe time and a safe space to do that, to allow your own bruised soul, your own exhausted bones and your own aching heart to speak to you and to be heard. As a minister, I spend time hearing people's hurts. It's one of the huge privileges of ministry, whether that ministry is ordained, professional, lay or informal. People let themselves be vulnerable near you and that is an enormous and a sacred gift. People bear their pain to you. People tell you what hurts them, what scares them and what they hunger for. All of those things are precious gifts. And almost invariably, after sharing even enormous, huge pain and grief, people end with, but there are others worse off than me. This is one of many things which repeatedly confirmed to me that people are brilliant. The fact that almost every conversation I have about people's pain ends with their concern for others just reaffirms my conviction that people are brilliant and that we are on the whole full of concern and love for others. But you don't always have to give a caveat to your lament. Your lamenting, your grieving, your mourning is valid and it is sacred. When it is safe, acknowledge your pain because your pain is part of your story part of your song, part of the song that you are asked to sing in this strange land. Tell your story, sing your song. Our songs and our stories will be part of what may bring us comfort. There is a piece of writing which I've loved for many years now. It's an extract from an essay and I haven't been able to find the whole essay because the book it's available in now goes for about 200 pounds. The piece is called, Let Me Hold You While I May. It's by Mary Jane Erian, and I'd like to share it with you now. When I first came across it, in what now seem like the untroubled days before COVID, although we know they had many, many causes for lament. When I first came across it, it seemed theoretical. Now it speaks to me, just as strongly, but differently. It's been a normal sort of day, common, like a rock along the path. Nothing about it would make one stop suddenly, pick it up and exclaim over it as one might do with a shell 
or a glistening piece of quartz. What was it really, this normal day? It was routine mostly. It was pleasant now and then, it was irritating now and then, it was deeply joyous now and then, it was sobering and frightening now and then. It was blessed with love throughout. Just a normal day, a normal day. Holding it in my hand this one last moment, I've come to see it as more than an ordinary rock. It is a gem, a jewel. In time of war, in peril of death, people have dug their hands and faces into the earth and remembered this. In time of sickness and pain, people have buried their faces in pillows and wept for this. In time of loneliness and separation, people have stretched themselves taut and waited for this. In time of hunger, homelessness and want, people have raised bony hands to the skies and stayed alive for this. Normal day, let me be aware of the treasure you are. Let me learn from you, love you, savour you, bless you before you depart. Let me not pass you by in quest of some rare and perfect tomorrow. Let me hold you while I may, for it will not always be so. One day I shall dig my nails into the earth, or bury my face in the pillow, or stretch myself taut, or raise my hands to the sky, and want more than all the world your return. In late February or early March last year, early spring 2020, I came to realize that I have something which I now call my 3am theology. It's a theology which is nothing like my rational, sensible, daytime, unitarian theology. It's the theology that wakes you up shaking and scared and wondering if it is really the end of the world, the days of judgment, the end of time, wondering if the horsemen are coming, wondering if the story of the ark was after all not a myth, not an allegory, but a piece of history that's about to be repeated, wondering if all those people who stand on the street warning us that the end is coming, all those people on the conservative Christian Facebook pages from which I am mostly banned, might actually be right. I mean, the world was actually on fire. That's not the first time you've heard those words this week. The world was on fire. The seas were on fire. The coastline was eroding before our very eyes sometimes. There were rumours getting louder about a deadly virus getting closer. People were being displaced by war and hunger and poverty and floods and earthquakes, and people seeking sanctuary were drowning in the attempt. People were being unkind and untruthful about all of these things. And at three in the morning, I often woke and wondered if it was the end of the world. 
and then I'd fall back asleep again. And in the warmer light of day, I'd pick up my daytime theology again and carry on. My 3 a.m. theology stung a little. There is a scene in Buffy the Vampire Slayer where Buffy is in a bit of a pickle at the hands of a baddie. For those who mind, it's Ethan Rain. And he says to her, this will sting a little, but don't worry, that'll go away when the searing agony kicks in. I wouldn't say searing agony kicked in, but the slight sting of my 3 a.m. theology started going away when the less sharp but more deep pain kicked in, when it started pushing its way into my broad light of day, wide awake, 3 p.m. theology as well. Still rational, still Unitarian, but getting a little bit eschatological at the fringes. Because, and it's quite awkward for a Unitarian minister to be saying this to a mainly Unitarian audience, it still feels sometimes, doesn't it, as though the world is coming to an end. I don't think it all the time, of course, and I don't think I really believe it. But when I'm having a low day, when I'm unwell, when I'm exhausted and in pain, then I do begin to feel it. And it could be. It could be. It is not God's wrath. Of course it's not. God loves us extravagantly, or God would not have brought us into being. Like Julian of Norwich's revelation about the tiny thing the size of a hazelnut and the knowledge that God made it, God sustains it, and God loves it, we would not be here in our glorious variety and diversity if we were not worth it. Whatever the people with the placards tell us, whatever the people on the conservative Christian pages of Facebook tell us, it is nothing to do with the fact that we are continually extending our understanding of ways to love and ways to be. Those people are wrong. There is no question. Although one of them the other day called me a reprobate entirely given over to my own lusts and desires. Mate, you overestimate my energy levels. But we have certainly upset nature. If the earth wanted to fling us off its very surface, who would blame it? Because much of this is our doing, and I'm not really at home to those who deny that. Climate change, the world on fire, the sea on fire, the seas rising, the coastline eroding, and desperate refugees being left to drown. We cannot deny that we are helping all of that along, especially those of us who are privileged, especially those of us who benefit from the sheer luck of living in the safer, wealthier parts of the world. You do know, don't you, that we are the camels who will struggle to fit through the eye of the needle. We are the rich. So if the earth wants to evict us, I could see why. So let's just pretend for a moment that we found out somehow that the world or human life on the world is coming to its end. 
let's imagine what is both easy and impossible to imagine, that in a few hundred years, we just won't be here. I'm saying a few hundred because I cannot bear to speak the actual possibilities here. What do we do with that hypothetical certain knowledge? What do we as Unitarians do to hold the world as sacred, given that knowledge? How do we serve a dying world, a dying population? What can we do? What we have to do is we have to build a kingdom of justice and love. It's as simple as that. We are charged with building what I call the kingdom of God and you might call something else. We have a kingdom to build. If the world is coming to an end, we need to build a kingdom while it does so. Maybe that doesn't sound logical. If we knew the world was ending, couldn't we just give up and give in? Well, yes, yeah, we could. One of the few things I remember about school PE, apart from the crushing misery of the whole horrible affair, was one of the PE teachers saying repeatedly and frustratedly that you don't slow down as you approach the finishing line. You carry on running through it. You run as fast as you can until it's actually over, not until it's nearly over. Although I do remember that from 45 years ago, an analogy that works better for me is one which the hospice movement holds dear. People are living until after their very last breath. We are alive until the very, very end, and we treat life with dignity and love and respect throughout. If you've ever sat with someone in their last moments, you know this. So we keep building the kingdom, even in the face of extinction. Well, okay then, but how? You will have a million good ideas. I have a few to add to them. The Unitarian Kingdom Building Handbook should be a thing, a huge, glorious, collaborative thing. Excuse me. First and foremost, we need to be there for people. I don't mean that in the glib, overused Friends theme song way. I mean, we actually have to be there. We have to have spaces, real or virtual, buildings or parks or cafes or the internet where we can be for people. And we have to make that space unimaginably flexible. We've learned over the last 18 months that we cannot simply sit in our churches on a Sunday morning and expect people to find us. We have to be where people are and increasingly where people are is online or in cafes, or let's be honest, anywhere but church. We have to go to those places as well. We have to be in our church buildings too, because we must not exclude those who yearn for that either. It's not either or, it can't be either or. And we don't just need to be there for everyone. We don't just need to put up a sign saying where we are. We need to be overt and loud about our wish to be there 
meaningfully and truly for people who are not used to having a church be there for them. Please hear that. We need to be there for people who are not used to having a church be there for them. And you'll note we have to talk about, I said that we'll have to talk about our wish to be there for people. If we're gonna be there for people, we have to know how they want us to be there for them. We can't just go, yeah, we're welcoming of everyone without knowing what welcome looks like, particularly to marginalized groups. My next bit follows on, fits in with a lot of what Stephen said yesterday. We have to be there for people in prayer. Maybe you call it something else quite like you do, but I'm not apologizing for the fact that prayer is central for me and prayer is the language I use. When we are there for people, we need to be there for them in prayer. Prayer with them, prayer for them, and prayer that we may be granted the grace and courage to turn that prayer into something practical. Why, as a faith movement, do we sometimes get embarrassed or even annoyed by that? I think it's true to say that we are sometimes surprised and a bit anxious when someone says to us, will you pray with me? I think more of us are okay with will you pray for me because we can do that in private, but will you pray with me sometimes comes a bit harder to us. Let's start to practice hearing it. I'm sorry, let's start to practice hearing it without panicking. Let's start to practice saying it. Let's start to bring it into our spiritual and social vocabulary. Will you pray with me? Can we pray together? If a visitor comes into our space and asks us to pray with them, we need to be comfortable with that. If someone wanders into our church in need of an ineffable something, they may want silence, but it's also a fairly safe bet that they want prayer. If a visitor asks us to pray with them, they want us to pray with them, not offer them a chat about what prayer means to them. If the world is ending, we need prayer. If the world isn't ending, we need prayer. Will you pray with me now? Let us turn to that which we hold the most sacred. That which nestles deep within the core of our being and that which also surrounds us entirely. That which is intimately near and unimaginably far that for which we have a thousand names and yet for which there is no name. Let us feel the strength of that sacred power. Let us honor it. Let us know it to be sacred and personal and necessary. Let us hold it tenderly and lovingly with thanks and joy. And let us know that it is mighty. And let us listen deep within our hearts to hear its message. Because it has a message. It is a message. And only when we truly hear that message can we set about the work.
and there is work to be done if we want to build a world of rightness and goodness. Let us acknowledge our blessings. Let us acknowledge that we have all that we need to sustain life and much that we need to attain pleasure. And in our gratitude, let us remember those who do not have these things and let us pray for the strength to do what we are called on to do to set this wrong right. Let us acknowledge that sometimes we do not do all that, was it, all that is within our power, that we allow others to suffer where we could aid them, that we sometimes cause that suffering. And let us know that every moment is a moment in which we can put our own failings behind us, know forgiveness and move forward. If we only learn to forgive others, we have also learned to forgive ourselves. All of these things can be if we make them be. We are how the world of glory, the power of love, and the kingdom of right and truth and justice will come into being. Amen. My journey into Unitarianism was similar to the story into Unitarianism that Rory told us about earlier in the week. I was looking for a church to attend which would affirm and acknowledge my relationship with my then future wife. She's now my ex-wife and one of the most important people in my life. So had we but known it, we also needed a church which would support us as our marriage ended and our hearts broke. We need to ask if we're up for being supportive in those moments, as well as celebrating the joy of the wedding. We need to be doing that. If there hadn't been an overt statement that yes, our relationship would be affirmed, we would have assumed that it wouldn't be, and we'd have moved on. I will just break into my own talk here to say I have her consent to share this story and she is here. It was the overt and unmissable acknowledgement of that that drew us in. Overt, unmissable and stated proudly and as officially as it gets in Unitarianism in all sorts of places. That's why we joined. And as a denomination, we should be proud of that. Of course we should. But something troubles me deeply. I fear that if someone who is trans or non-binary or in a polyamorous relationship is looking for a faith community now, right now, this evening, I fear they will not find a statement that they are welcome, that we affirm and acknowledge them. They will not find a statement that we, as a denomination, have thought about them and want to offer them our presence and our love. It broke my heart when the motion on trans rights wasn't chosen for discussion at the last GA meetings. And I want to say to my trans and non-binary siblings that I am sorry 
that we let you down. We need to build that into our kingdom. And I mean it when I say that we have to be there for people. We have to be there for them. The primary reason for someone wanting to join a spiritual community is for them to be spiritually nourished. When someone's looking to join a faith community, I promise you, they are not thinking, I'd like to try church because I quite fancy going on a tea rotor and there's nowhere else I can do that. That's not what they're thinking. They want to join a faith community because they want spiritual nourishment and spiritual companionship. And there really is nowhere else they can get that. Someone does not have to become actively involved, does not have to join a single committee, does not ever have to bring flowers or biscuits, does not ever have to do a reading, join a social group or anything else. If someone comes along to our services in person or virtual for years and years and never even joins us for the social time afterwards, we have to be there for them. We need to stop seeing everyone who comes along as a potential resource. We are the resource. We are there to provide the nourishment. Let's build that kingdom. Right now, one of our priorities has to be to listen to people's fears. We need to listen to our own fears, face them, accept them, and refuse to shout them down. And then we take the courage that lends us to listen to other people's fears, to face them, to accept them, and never to shout them down. Who, when they're worrying about something, responds well to being told that they're worrying about nothing? When I'm facing something medically terrifying for myself or for someone I love, I do not want someone to go, it'll be okay, because I know that that means, please shut up. We have to be there with people's fears. We need, as Shana said in her talk on Tuesday, to sit with people in their suffering. We need to sit with them, not rationalize at them. We need to know, as she also said, that empathy is a superpower. Many years ago at the GA meetings, I fell apart walking the labyrinth. I am fervently in favour of crying, but I never do it in public. But that time I did. And I dashed to the quiet room and continued to fall apart. There was sobbing. There was, I'm sorry to have to tell you, there was snot. And two people who were there in the room, people who many of you know, but who I won't name because I don't have consent and one of them has sadly died since. They just came and sat either side of me. They didn't say anything. They certainly didn't try to hug me or pat me or any of that. They just sat there beside me, sitting with me in my suffering. And I can't tell you how much it helped how grateful I am to them, how powerful and strong and sacred and godly that act or that not really acting at all was. They sat with me in my suffering until I could breathe again. Let's build that kingdom. We need to do everything in our powers 
to make our communities places where fears and uncertainties are not only allowed, but actively welcome. I want us to be a church where people can speak their fears and have their fears heard. I want us to be a church where we never ever criticize or minimize someone's feelings of fear. Let's build that kingdom. And let's sing together. If, if the world is coming to an end, we have to do what we can to lessen the harm. Even if in this hypothetical situation, because again, I can't bring myself to say it's not hypothetical, where we know we only have a few generations left, surely we want to make it as good for those who come after us as we possibly can. Surely that's a kingdom we have to be building. It really is not too late to ramp up our commitment to zero waste, to recycling, to not using our cars when we don't need to. Of course, as Stephen pointed out last night, those of us who are able to 
also need to be working to change the entire system which causes this, but our micro efforts still matter. And it is definitely not too late for us to ramp up our commitment to improving the world for those of us who are the most marginalized, who are the most affected by what's happening, because those things go hand in hand. What if every time we make a decision involving a transaction, we stop and ask ourselves what impact that decision will have on the most vulnerable? What impact does your five pound car wash have on the person doing it? That person may be enslaved. What impact does your new iPhone have on the 10 year old Congolese child who is mining the cobalt for it? What impact does your flight have on the inhabitants of the low lying island which is going to vanish when the sea rises only a little bit more? What impact does your coffee have on the coffee farmer whose weekly income is less than she needs to buy food for her family, let alone send them to school or the doctor? What impact does your same day delivery from Amazon have on the people who will have to pick it, pack it and deliver it who could be working full time and still going home and having to choose between topping up the gas meter or buying dinner. We need to sit with the suffering of these people. Please know as I raise these questions that I am not preaching from a lofty position of perfection. I have an iPhone. I've used Amazon today. But perhaps if I keep asking myself that question, what impact does this have on the most vulnerable? Perhaps it might inspire me to change. Paul Eddington, Quaker and actor, was once asked what he wanted his epitaph to be. He wanted it to say, he did very little harm. It's not too late to work for ourselves to minimize the harm we will have done. And here's an even bigger challenge. Once we've got used to asking that question as individuals, how about if every time we're going to make a decision in a church meeting, every single time we ask ourselves what impact it will have on the most vulnerable? Yes. I've just wished you longer church meetings. They will be longer, but they will be more sacred, more prayerful, better contributors to the building of the kingdom. Where are we buying our church coffee? Where are we buying our church toilet rolls? Where are we going for our energy supplies? What if there was a rule that every motion put before the GA had to start and end with that question? What if our discussions were based around that question? And what if we each voted according to the answer to that question? How does this affect the most vulnerable? There are many ways of sitting with suffering. There is an organization that resolved to do this, to put the poor and the marginalized at the front of all decisions. 
And that organization probably wasn't any of the ones you're thinking of. It was the government of El Salvador in 2009. Inspired by the work of Oscar Romero, one of my spiritual heroes, the government of this tragically complicated and difficult country pledged to put the poor first in their decision-making. We need to build that into our kingdom. And it's not just what we purchase. It's what we say, what we sing, what we read and what we preach. What am I saying to someone who might want to join our church when all the hymns are from a European tradition and when I assume they'll know them? What am I saying when I do even a really good sermon about our sacred responsibility to support refugees and I talk entirely about refugees as if they are only ever a cause and not ever a part of our community? What are we saying when we assume someone has the eyesight and the literacy to read our newsletter? What are we saying when we don't offer a large print version of everything and an audio version of everything we can because we don't have anyone who needs that? What are we saying when our website isn't accessible to people with sensory processing issues or sight problems? What are we assuming when we ask someone what they do for a living? What are we saying when we blithely assume someone can join us for that congregational meal out or contribute to our charity appeal or put a quid in the collection plate that we've just thrust in their face or bring some food for the food bank? What was I just saying when I so blithely implied that we can all afford the extra to go fair trade? What are we saying every time we use the word only to someone when we're talking about money? It's only a fiver. Much more to the point, what are we saying when people tell us that these things hurt and exclude them and we ignore them and carry on regardless? What are we saying when a group tells us we are hurting them or contributing to their hurt, or at the very least not contributing to the easing of it, and we carry on doing so? What are we saying? We need to tell our stories. We need to sing our songs even in this strange land, but we need to question them. We need to revel as well in our history as individuals and in our history as a denomination. We need to revel in our non-conformist background, in that background which is born of both privilege and marginalization, as Joe pointed out on Monday. We've been marginalized. We are massively privileged. Where, where is the comfort here? I promised you I'd talk about comfort. The first comfort is that even if the world is coming to an end, we can keep building the kingdom. We are all living until we are no longer living. We're not helpless. Our hearts can break and we can probably avoid despair. The other comfort here is in some lines from a prayer I'll be repeating in full at the end of the talk perhaps my favourite prayer. 
The comfort here is in the words, be grateful, my soul. My life was worth living. Be grateful, my soul. My life was worth living. We tell our stories, we sing our songs, we keep building the kingdom. But you know what? Sometimes whilst Rome burns, we need to fiddle. I am not a great leader of a dying empire and I don't play the fiddle. But over the last 18 months, even whilst listening to my 3 a.m. theology, theology and battling it, my Candy Crush score has become either enormously impressive or absolutely despicable, depending on your outlook and whether you're jealous of high Candy Crush scores really high. We need to play games. We need to go to gigs. We need to dance. We need to eat toast. We need to tend to the garden. We need to go for runs. We need to play the fiddle. We need to tell jokes and we need to watch terrible telly. We don't all need to do all those things. We need to share the silly memes. We need to coo at pictures of each other's cats and each other's babies. And we just need to sit and stare into space. And you know what, sometimes, so long as we don't act as if it's not the case, we may need to pretend that everything is okay. I know all of these things sound irresponsible, but sometimes we need to turn off, turn away, and nestle into that which is simply comforting. It is healthy sometimes when everything isn't okay to pretend that it is. Does it ever get easy? You mean life? Yeah. What do you want me to say? Lie to me. Yes. It's terribly simple. The good guys are always stalwart and true. The bad guys are easily distinguished by their pointy horns or black hats. We always defeat them and save the day. No one ever dies and everyone lives happily ever after. Liar. Words there from the eminent theologians Rupert Giles, played by Michael Alert and Buffy Summers. Most of all though, we need to bear in mind that our lives were worth living. Tell your stories, sing your songs, build the kingdom. Let's just take a few seconds for a bit of a stretch because I don't know about you, but I need one and a bit of a wriggle. Just look away from your screen for a moment and let your vision stretch as far as it can, given the space you're sitting in. It might help to just rub your eyes with your fists. It looks childish and it works wonders. And actually gently batting yourself about the head works wonders too, but that looks even weirder. Go ahead. Stretch and wriggle for a moment. We're going to hear some music. 
It's a piece called Reclaimed by Steel Ice Fan. If you listen very carefully at the end, you might be able to hear me applauding. It's unlikely, but it's worth a try. Reclaimed is a thing of beauty and a thing of sad comfort. Your thoughts will make your hands make things that make others take a stand. 
It is terrifying to think that the world or human life on earth might be coming to an end. We cannot conceive of it any more than we can conceive of how the world will look when we ourselves are no longer in it. But something just as scary actually may be even vastly more scary because the hardest thing in the world is to live in it, is thinking about our life on earth going on for millennia more. And that is also possible. The sheer enormity of our responsibility, our responsibility right in this very second, because this stuff will not wait, is daunting. So just say that we were to find out without any doubt or question that human life on earth has 10,000 more years to go. What do we need to do now to make that future as blessed and as sacred as it can possibly be? What do we want our many times great-grandchildren to think of us? I have to admit that when I started planning this talk, I thought that the answers to the two parts of the question were gonna be very different. I had the structure sorted. I was gonna answer one, I was gonna answer the other, I was gonna move on to a conclusion. But it's now clear to me that they are not, after all. It's now clear to me that we have actions to take and stories to tell and songs to sing and that we have to do them holding two possibilities in our minds, that the world is coming to an end and that the world is not coming to an end. The kingdom needs building, whether we're building it only for the generation who might already be here or for four or five or 500 generations. You're possibly familiar with the Jewish proverb that says, you know a society is healthy when old people plant trees they will not see grow, whose fruit they will not taste and under whose shade they will not sit. Let's plant trees. I mean, actually, let's, let's do that physically and literally. But I also mean it figuratively, of course. Let's get rid of this, oh, it'll see us out attitude to our churches, our congregations and our denomination. Plant trees under whose shade we will not sit. And let's go further. Let's plant trees which might not even grow. Let's even plant trees which probably won't grow. Let's plant lots of trees so that some might. We will be planting those trees in the rich soil tilled by our Unitarian forebears. We will be planting them in hundreds of years of progress and battle and courage. And we will be planting them knowing that the people who tilled that soil and who planted the trees under which we sit almost certainly would not like what we're doing now. I wonder what Priestley and Charpeck and Martineau and von Petzold would really think of us. And so we plant them knowing that we probably wouldn't like what the people who will sit under them generations hence get up to. And we have to plant them knowing that it's okay. We will be planting them in hope rather than certainty, but we should plant them, we must plant them. This kingdom that we're building, we want it to be a kingdom of justice, of peace, of hope, of love. I want it to be a kingdom of prayer and a kingdom of God. 
And I want it to be a kingdom where if you're not people of prayer or people of God, you are still fully, entirely, wholeheartedly involved and centred in its structures. I want it to be a kingdom where people are inspired by all scripture, by which I mean by everything which is written and by all traditions and by all sources. I want it to be basically a kingdom like in-person summer school. Those of you who have been to a summer school in person will know that it does offer a glimpse of that kingdom. I often say that summer school shows us a picture of what Unitarianism could be at its very best, and that that shows us a picture of what the world could be like at its very best. Of course, as Jane pointed out in her opening worship, some of that magic comes from the fact that the time at summer school is limited to one week. It's one intense week. It's also a fully catered week with all the activities laid on. So I think it's easier to keep your kingdom building up when you're being fed three times a day and when you know you're going home Saturday. I have friends who live in permanent religious communities who acknowledge that community life is not always easy, but your sacred covenant with God and with each other does not mean that you don't argue about the washing up or get fed up with each other's snoring. But the fact that we can do it for a week means that we can do it. It's a model of what we can do. We can exist in community and we can build that kingdom. We can live in community and work, eat, pray, sing, talk, love, create, play, walk and listen together. It is a thing which is possible. What would the world be like if that could spread outwards? What would the world be like if we were all able to talk safely and consensually about our deepest truths? about our theologies, about the things which give life its true meaning. Let's build that kingdom. Will you pray with me before we leave? Will you pray with me? This prayer comes from Unitarian minister and martyr Norbert Charpeck, another spiritual hero of mine. Will you pray with me? It is worthwhile to live and to fight courageously for sacred ideals. Oh, blow ye evil winds into my body's fire, my soul you'll never unravel. Even though disappointed a thousand times or fallen in the fight and everything would worthless seem, I have lived amongst eternity. Be grateful, my soul. My life was worth living. I have lived amongst eternity. Be grateful, my soul. My life was worth living. Amen.
Let's sing again. We will extinguish our candle, but its light has spread already beyond its small reach. Its light has joined with all the light that there is, and that light is forever. Let us go, inspired to tell our stories, to sing our songs, and let us go and build that kingdom. Amen. <laughs>